Hello and welcome to our first podcast for PolySci 200 Intro to U.S. Politics. This podcast is entitled, When Did African Americans Become Full Citizens? Citizenship may seem to be a simple concept. Either someone is a citizen of the United States or they're not. Yet African Americans' path to full citizenship, the ability to access all the rights and privileges due to a citizen, has been a long and difficult one. In this podcast, we will examine black citizenship during the various eras of American history and try to decide at what point, if ever, black Americans became full citizens. First, we'll discuss that shameful period before the Civil War when slavery was an established part of the national economy and was accommodated in the Constitution and national laws. Effie Whittefield, thank you for joining us. To start us off, could you tell us what the basic rights of all U.S. citizens were in the first eight decades of its existence? The basic rights given to Americans vary throughout time, but from the creation of the Declaration of Independence in 1776, the Constitution's ratification in 1787, up to the Civil War 100 years later, the core inalienable rights and natural rights as detailed in the Declaration of Independence included life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, lines I'm sure we all know, which in the most basic terms ensure the freedom of opportunity to own property. There have been many additions and clarifications to these rights in the form of the Bill of Rights and the constitutional amendments that followed. But before the Civil War, there was little to no chance of most African Americans receiving these rights and freedoms that all but explicitly applied to white men. Even after the ratification of the 13th Amendment and the abolition of slavery, both the people and government of America continued to discriminate against blacks and deny them of basic rights. Did the original Constitution recognize all those born in the United States as citizens, or even capable of becoming citizens? Not really. As originally written, the Constitution was very vague about what granted eligible persons the ability to become citizens. Citizenship as we know it in modern day is defined in 1868 by Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, which states that anyone physically born in the United States or later naturalized is a citizen of both the state and the nation, and therefore subject to all rights, freedoms, and protections that citizenship entails. Before the Emancipation Proclamation of 1863, the 13th Amendment and the 14th Amendment, African Americans were generally not considered citizens in any capacity, even if they had been freed, and the language previously defining citizenship was so vague that even though it detailed a naturalization process for immigrants from Europe, Native Americans could be considered citizens in some cases. Following up with the previous topic of basic rights, great lengths were taken in the Constitution to ensure that African Americans were not counted as citizens and therefore exempt from such basic rights. The most important qualifier when defining citizenship in the original Constitution is the phrase free persons, which can be seen in several places. There is additional language, most importantly in the three-fifths clause, which will be discussed later. This language is used to exclude enslaved persons and non-whites from this category of free persons making citizenship as recognized by the government at the time dependent on that person's status of being free or enslaved. So some, contact, sorry, some commentators argue that the original Constitution endorsed slavery. What evidence do they cite? The Constitution does not explicitly allow or prohibit slavery in clear terms, which is what leaves it up to modern debate. In September 15 of 2015, the New York Times published an opinion by historian Sean Willens with the bold title, Constitutionally, Slavery is No National Institution. 
prompted by Senator Bernie Sanders claiming during his presidential campaign that the United States founding was reliant on racist principles. Woolens raises the valid argument that since slavery is not explicitly mentioned as legal, and that because the anti-slavery North was able to quell the pro-slavery South's succession and emancipate the enslaved Blacks, the Constitution cannot be pro-slavery. It can even be said that a pro-slavery interpretation of the Constitution is exactly what the Confederacy fought for in the Civil War. On the other hand, there is just as much, if not more, evidence to prove that the Constitution allowed and endorsed slavery. As a response to Willens's essay, The Atlantic published how the Constitution was indeed pro-slavery by historian David Waldstreicher on September 19, 2015. While Willens holds the founders in good faith, Waldstreicher argues that the exclusion of slavery from the Constitution is meaningless as the document protected slavery from three generations until a devastating war and a constitutional amendment changed the game. Additionally, there was no provision in the Constitution to prevent or outlaw slavery. There was, however, the Three-Fifths Compromise, which gave pro-slave states close to half of the House of Representatives, the Fugitive or Runaway Slave Clause, and a promise to not regulate the international slave trafficking until 1808 at the earliest. So in your view, is, was slavery a national institution or a local institution? In my opinion, slavery was both national and local, regardless of what Willens might say. Since slavery wasn't explicitly legalized in the Constitution, it was technically not a national right, but states were only able to hold slaves at the local level because it was allowed by the national government. This allowance of slavery was used time and time again almost as a tool in the political theater by both sides to further the Constitution's development. One such example, one such example of this is a three-fifths compromise, which, as Waldstreicher points out, James Madison saw as a foundation of good government and as it could lead to the protection of slaves deemed both person and property. James Madison owned slaves himself. So it was his idea to count enslaved persons as only three-fifths of a person for purposes of representation. Was that a victory for the South or a loss? Madison's three-fifths compromise was a necessary consolation to the South so that they could win them over to sign on to the Constitution. It was more of a bribe in a practical sense, as what the clause mainly meant was that for every five enslaved people in the state, the state's population would increase by three. This was a massive boon for the slave states as it greatly increased representation in the House of Representatives. And of course, it's important to note that these extra representatives were white. As stated by Wall Streicher, the Three-Fifths Compromise is one reason why slavery remained fairly unchallenged as there were many more pro-slavery representatives than there would have been otherwise. And in presidential elections, it aided Thomas Jefferson and James Polk's victories. And those two were also slave owners. So since the Constitution required, um, since the Constitution required the free states to return formerly enslaved people to their owners, doesn't that show that the Constitution was actually pro-slavery? It could be argued either way. Those who interpret the Constitution and laws of the time according to Willens's views would say, no, the Constitution is pro-property. And since the clause was weakly worded and had weak enforcement, it therefore doesn't have a lasting impact. 
As others would point out, this clause is as close as you can find to a direct allowance of slavery in the Constitution. The fact that people were considered property almost as a product means that slavery was endorsed and facilitated on a federal level when considering that even states which had outlawed slavery were required to turn in enslaved people who had fled their life of imprisonment. The fact that such a law could be made and enforced nationally is the best in indicator of the Constitution providing the ownership of other people as a right. As you pointed out in the beginning that uh, Bernie Sanders made the claim that the U.S. was founded on U.S. on as you pointed out earlier, Senator Bernie Sanders claimed that the U.S. was founded on racist principles during uh, one of his races for uh, president. In your reading for this podcast, did you come across evidence that would support this contention? Did he convince you? In my opinion, the United States may not have been founded on racist principles, but it was founded with the assistance of racist principles at every step and these racist principles have not been eliminated, even if they aren't written directly in the stone that is our country's founding parchment. Walt Streicher's essay aligns most closely with my own views, even when removed from the context of taking Willens down a notch, especially this quote from his conclusion. When it takes a war to resolve something, humane persons call it a failure or tragedy. They don't blame the people who point out the roots of the problem, unless their agenda is less historical than political. And I think partly there's this point of view where the Constitution has to be perfect to accept the good points of it. And part of Willens' opinion is that the Constitution is completely wonderful, so there cannot be any iota of slavery allowed in it. Whereas, yes, it's quite clear that there was a lot of influence that slavery had on the Constitution. Lastly, I wanted to ask you uh, about the opinion of a contemporary act. Uh, you read uh, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July by Frederick Douglass. Um, what do you think he would say to Senator Sanders' uh, contention that we were founded on racist principles? So far, this, con this conversation has been dominated by me, a white girl, explaining what two other white guys think about a document that a bunch of other white guys wrote several hundred years ago. Um, but there is no time like the present to bring in Frederick Douglass. Um, in 1852, before the abolition of slavery, he delivered a speech to the Ladies' Anti-Slavery Society in Rochester. And his main topic was how blind and emotionally dead Americans were to the oppression occurring on their soil that was carried out by their own men. His speech centered around the Independence Day holiday and the inherent irony, which can be best expressed in his own words. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought light and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. So as someone who lived through the horrors of being enslaved and was lucky enough to build a platform for himself, I feel that Douglas would most likely agree with the idea that America and racism have gone hand in hand from the very beginning, but he would be hopeful for the future change. Thank you, Ashley. I appreciate yes. that. The next era we'll look at is that of Reconstruction. 
Tom Stegging is here to tell us about African-American citizenship in the time after the Civil War. So Tom, my first question for you, remind us, what was Reconstruction? Well, Reconstruction was the period after the Civil War when slavery was abolished, but just before the white insurrectionists were granted back their citizenship rights. It was in this brief period that blacks were allowed to vote and hold office. When it came to formerly enslaved people, they needed to figure out a way of how to treat and train these ex-slaves. And because there were so many freed slaves, this became a big problem of the Reconstruction. William Edward Berghardt Du Bois, an African-American scholar and activist, wrote an article on the topic of Reconstruction in 1910. In this article, we are told about the rise of the black community and the hardships they faced as they were trying to establish a better life for their people. If it wasn't for activists like Du Bois, the Reconstruction period would not have been as successful as it was. The reason for this was because black men like Du Bois, and there were very few of them, were very educated in a time where there were many illiterate people, especially in the black community. This meant these educated activists were able to do their research and put forward valid points when contested, which ultimately ended up paying off. Three agencies sought to help figure out this problem, and without these agencies, Reconstruction would have been a lot, would have had a lot bigger problems. These agencies were the Negro Church, the Negro School, and the Freedmen's Bureau. The Negro Church played its part by taking in all of its black members of the churches after they had been kicked out by the white churches of the South shortly after the war. The Negro Churches of, of the North took over the South when this happened. The African Methodist Episcopal Church from 1866 to 1876 had increased its members from 75,000 to 200,000. Also at the same time, their property was vastly increasing. Shortly after this came the Negro School. This was a massive turning point in the African-American community because at the time there were many illiterate blacks. So this was a big moment in the history as it was the first time they had access to a good level of education. The school was created by the Northern religious bodies as their first expression of missionary activity. Lastly, we have the Freedmen's Bureau, which was established as a government guardianship to protect the black people and to ensure them of their economic and civil rights. The Freedmen's Bureau was a struggle to create as it had solid opposition in the white South, but the agency was also frowned upon by the North as they seen the organization as socialistic and over -patternal. The Bureau, Bureau was a success as it accomplished a great achievement at that period of time. Du Bois's article uh, specifically tries to evaluate black-run governments. Um, why, why did he feel like he needed to, to write that, and what did he find? Well, he found that over, over the period of time, black people eventually got the chance to vote after a letter that was wrote from Andrew Johnson that stated to them the state of Mississippi that if a person of color can read the Constitution of the United States in English, and also be able to write their names, and also to any black person that owns real estate that is valued at at least $250, who also pays taxes, they should be able to vote. Johnson stated that if Mississippi were able to do this, then it would set an example for other states. He also made it clear that all this could be done with complete safety, and if all the southern states were able to do this, then it would put them all under the same basis as the free states. Eventually, Dubar found, after a long period of time, the topic of the United States had the final say in the matter. What the government stated was, the states may still regulate the suffrage as they please, but they may not deprive a man of the right to vote simply because he is a Negro. This came as a great success in the African-American community because it was a big step in the right direction. And so when they had the vote, um, they started to install governments, right? Yeah. 
and uh, how did those governments feel? Well, the Negro government was off the bat was all, always tried to be undermined by the white government. We know this after we see in Du Bois's um, article, he said he evaluated the black the black run governments at the time were evaluated by their um, charges. These charges were extravagant. These these main charges were extravagant theft and incompetency of officials. Du Bois stated that often charges against the Negro government would be exaggerated, but not at one point did the black government threaten civilization or the foundations of social order. African Americans at that time were also accused of threatening property and being very inefficient, but Du Bois backed this up by stating when a man has, in his opinion, been robbed and maltreated, he is sensitive about money matters. Du Bois strongly believed that the black-run government in the South was set up to fail. Every opportunity the whites got to shame them, they would exaggerate it to the best of their ability in the hope the government would eventually fail. Were there any other explanations for their failures? Were there internal or external factors that contributed to those failures? Well, according to Du Bois, the failures of the Reconstruction were mainly no fault of their own. There were many ridiculous things connected to the Reconstruction governments, which began with the claim that the black community is incompetent, as people claim they could not read nor write. Also in the southern states at this time, blacks were often accused of stealing, which more than often not is greatly exaggerated. One example of this would be the taxation in Mississippi. Apparently the taxation was 14 times higher in 1874 than it was in 1869. This was blamed on the black governments as they were once again being accused of stealing. But when further careful examination was carried out, it has shown that the work of the government was doing in 1874 actually warranted the increased taxation, as this is even backed up by a Southern white historian who stated that there were a number of restorations that needed to be done, which the government were obligated to undertake. These things were, were like the state house and grounds, the executive mansion, the penitentiary, the insane asylum, and the buildings for the deaf and dumb. On top of this, new institutions were introduced and needed funding, one being a new building for the blind people. What didn't help at this time either was the cost of the building materials. This was because they took hold warrants were worth 60 or 70 cents on the dollar. What were their successes, according to Du Bois? Well, according to Du Bois, the three main things the Negro governments achieved in these difficult times was a democratic government, free public schools and new social legislation. Du Bois stated these successes were only possible because of the new leaders. These new leaders were men with knowledge and value. Two examples of this would be John R. Lynch, who was a black Republic Republican politician, and Jonathan C. Gibbs, who was the first state superintendent of instruction in Florida. These were just two of the men who were great leaders for the Reconstruction, and without these men, the Reconstruction would never have been possible. Du Bois believes they were so successful at the time because of their thirst for knowledge they had, and from this began the free, free school system, which saw thousands of illiterate African-Americans get access to free education, which would eventually boost the black community. So what did the experience of Reconstruction uh, demonstrate about black citizenship? When African-Americans had the vote and could put politicians into power at the state level, were they full citizens? Well, the experience of the Reconstruction showed the world at the time how hard it was to be a black citizen living in America, especially in the southern states. The fight these black men and women shown can only be admired, and at this point in time, all their hard work had, had paid off as they were given the right to vote and benefited in a number of different ways. When African Americans were given the chance to vote, they were seen as full citizens. This was seen as a success to the North, but it put the South in a predicament they did not want to be in. The South had two options. They either kept the blacks under as an ignorant 
proletariat and potentially stand a chance of being ruled from the jails or the slums. Or they work together with the black community and raise them to a position where they have the opportunity to be in school and be educated, which in the long run would benefit the whole nation as they would have better educated people across the whole country. Thank you, John. Well, after Reconstruction came the Jim Crow era, and Victoria Kaplinger is going to uh, tell us about that. Uh, to start, Victoria, could you tell us what was the Jim Crow system and how it served to uh, disenfranchise blacks? So something Americans don't realize is that the Jim Crow laws of the 1870s through the 1960s was actually a caste system. Within this, African Americans held the status of second-class citizens. The status legitimatized anti-black racism while legalizing, normalizing, and reintroducing discriminatory practices against African Americans. This included, but was not limited to, political disenfranchisement, violence, and intimidation, economic suppression, and social segregation. The Jim Crow system upheld the idea that blacks were intelligently and culturally inferior to whites. With the creation of this caste system came a fear of a Mongol race that would destroy America. In the minds of those enforcing the Jim Crow system, treating blacks equal to whites would encourage interracial sexual unions and lead to a Mongol race who may use overwhelming numbers to seize control of America. As a result of such ideas, it became normal to view African Americans as less than human. Thus, it served as a social justification for discriminatory practices. Etiquette norms were strictly held to ensure no black man's actions would imply he had intimacy with a white woman. This meant no black man could offer his hand or other part of his body to a white woman, or he risked being accused of rape. Nor could a black man offer to light the cigarette of a white woman due to the intimacy correlated with such a gesture. Similarly, no black person was to be given equal or more respect than a white person. This meant that a black man could not offer his hand to a handshake with a white man as it implied social equality. Blacks were always introduced to whites, never whites to blacks. Whites did not use titles of respect when referring to or speaking to blacks. They only used first names. However, blacks were required to use courtesy titles such as Mr., Mrs., Miss, Sir, or Ma'am, and they could never refer to a white person by the first name. Even though blacks were allowed to vote under the 15th Amendment, Southern polling stations often used poll taxes, literacy tests, and the use of grandfather clauses. Some states created white primaries by passing laws that declared social parties and political parties to be outside the 15th Amendment. This meant parties such as the Mississippi Democratic Party could prevent African Americans from being members, and thus prevent them from running for elected positions. Jim Crow etiquette norms such as these were used to exclude blacks from public transportation and facilities, from juries, jobs, and neighborhoods, while Jim Crow laws served as legal justification and wiggle room for these discriminatory practices. One of the important um, figures at the time was Booker T. Washington. Um, could you tell us a little bit about him and what his answer was to uh, Jim Crow? So Booker, T's Washington, Booker T. Washington's response to Jim Crow was largely a call to stand together and form friendships between the African-American and white communities. Washington also created the Tuskegee Institute to ensure higher education opportunities for African-Americans. His arguments for the approach to race relations were relatively moderate. He argued that accommodations were a necessary evil for the African-American community, which would prove to whites that African-Americans were worthy of equality and civil rights. This non-confrontational viewpoint gained him popularity within the white community, but made him controversial in the black community. 
Several period advantages Washington was able to use, including the transcontinental railroad, urbanization, telephones, women's suffrage, and immigration. Each of these developments brought about more of a necessity for equality and helped disadvantaged groups band together to strengthen their arguments. Washington was a big part of this. Thank you. Um, another important um, feature of the Jim Crow era was the pre uh, prevalence of lynching. Could you tell us about that? When and where did it tend to occur? Who was almost always targeted by it? Who carried it out and why wasn't it stopped by authorities? Lynching is a term used to describe when a mob executes someone they deem guilty of a crime, often after significant torture and mutilation of the corpse, while declaring the action to be an act of justice. Victims were often hung in a tree and set on fire or dismembered. Anti-black lynchings took place in roughly 12 southern states between 1877 and 1950. Lynchings in the West were normally white lynchings for murder or cattle thievery. A majority of the victims were African Americans, but white people who helped blacks or were anti-lynching were also often lynched. The assailants were often mobs who viewed themselves as the judge, jury, and executioner. Regular community members took part alongside law enforcement and government officials. Authority intervention was usually minimal, though it did have devastating consequences for the African community. While some governmental officials or law enforcement officers attempted to turn away mobs, many more left the cells of black inmates unguarded once rumors of lynching began to spread. Mobs themselves often received help from or were composed of law enforcement members. Uh, was lynching and uh, race riots a local problem only in certain parts of the country or was it a national problem? So these lynchings and race riots were a local issue, but the federal government should have intervened when the local governments proved unable and or unwilling to stop the violence. In instances such as the 1919 Chicago race riots, the violence was contained to the city of Chicago, making it a local issue. However, peace were unable to control the violence, despite mobilizing over four-fifths of the city's 3,500 police officers. The inability of the Chicago authorities to prevent over 1,538 people being directly affected by the violence, either being killed, injured, or made homeless, provides significant justification for intervention on the part of the federal government, whose job is to protect the citizens. So what did the prevalence of lynching and race riots say about the citizen right, citizenship rights of African Americans? Take a look at the 1919 Omaha Courthouse lynching. Racial tensions were on the rise with the great migration of tens of thousands of African Americans to industrial cities in the North. Omaha, in particular, saw its black population double in the 1920s. This led to resentment over job competition by white ethnic groups. The Omaha Bee exploited this tension during the Red Summer, with daily coverage of attacks by African American men on white women, and ignoring the attacks on African American women. A September story by Will, on Will Brown caused a mob of 250 men and women to gather outside the courthouse on September 28th, where they tied a rope to the neck of the mayor and hung him on a lamppost. The mayor was cut down as the mob broke into the courthouse and dragged Brown out. After torturing, killing, and mutilating his corpse, the mob began to celebrate by taking pictures with the corpse and buying pieces of the rope to be used as souvenirs. Sometime after Brown was murdered, U.S. Army units arrived and set up command posts in the heart of Omaha's black community, and another in the community most of the rioters had come from. While official announcements stated the Army was there to protect African Americans from further violence, oral legend in the black community upholds that the purpose was to prevent retaliation by black Omahans, who were waiting on the rooftops of 24th Street with guns. 
1919's Red Summer was hardly the most recent occurrence of lynching. According to blackpast.org, the last major lynching was that of James Bernard Jr. in 1998. This trend of authorities failing to prevent violence paired with the reluctance to prosecute perpetrators in the early to mid 20th century shows that African-Americans were not viewed as full citizens with equal protection under the law. It was during this period that the NAACP uh, formed. How did that organization try to change this dynamic? So thankfully, groups such as the NAACP attempted to change the dynamic that was happening at this time. The stated goal of this organization was to ensure the political, educational, social, and economic equality of minority groups, citizens of the United States, and to eliminate racial prejudice. To do this, the group created branch offices and established itself as a legal advocate through court battles against discriminatory laws. The NAACP also committed itself to a publicity propaganda battle against Birth of a Nation in 1915. Later, they utilized le legislative battles, protest, artistic propaganda, and statistics to eradicate lynching. By encouraging social movements such as the 1963 March on Washington and battling for economic justice during the Great Depression, the NAACP solidified its position as a defender of minority group citizens and ensured protections would be put in place for them. As a result of their efforts, people in America were awakened to the issues around them. The support for legal, economic, and social change and equality demonstrated that the black community would never cease their demands for equality. These demands were echoed by white supporters, leading to a widespread social change that resulted in a social understanding that blacks were equal to whites, both as full citizens under the law and as human beings in their own right. Thank you, Victoria. So clearly the early 20th century was a tumultuous one for race relations in the United States. Theodore McIntyre is here to brief us on the years that followed the First World War, when black veterans returned from fighting honorably in France to a segregated and hostile country. As Victoria alluded, the Red Summer of 1919 was ripe with lynchings and so-called race riots, but a particularly grim incident happened two years later, uh, the Tulsa Massacre. Theodore, what set off the Tulsa Massacre? What exacerbated it? What finally caused it to end, and what took so long? So in 1921, black 19-year-old Dick Rowland stepped onto an elevator on the third floor of the Drexel Building in Tulsa, Oklahoma with a 14-year-old elevator operator, Sarah Page. It is still not completely clear what happened in the time between Rowland entering the elevator and it arriving on the first floor, but police later said that whatever happened was most likely unintentional. There are theories, however, that he either tripped, consequently bumping into Page, or even that he purposely assaulted her, scratching her and tearing her clothing. Either way, once the elevator reached the first floor, Roland ran as a clerk from a nearby store came to Page's assistance. Despite running, the police were able to identify and arrest Roland by the following morning. The same day as his arrest, May 31st, the Tulsa Tribune published the story on the front page of their newspaper with the narrative that Roland had intentionally harmed the young elevator operator. The story claimed that prior to entering the elevator, Roland had been, quote, looking up and down the hallway as if to see if there was anyone in sight. The Tulsa De Police Department's chief of detectives has been quoted as declaring this article largely responsible for inciting the excessive amount of violence that followed. When Roland was initially taken into custody, he was put in a below-standard cell in city jail until Police Commissioner Alkins reportedly received an anonymous call threatening the prisoner's life. Seeing as lynches were not exactly unheard of in Tulsa, having 
two recorded in only nine months prior, Police Chief Gaston arranged for Roland to be taken four blocks away to the county jail. There he was placed on the top floor four, four blocks away. Um, there, there, sorry about that. There he was placed on the top floor and deputies were ordered to take the only elevator all the way up and disable it. Even with deputies barricaded in with Roland, Alkins and uh, Gaston urged Seraph McCullough to get him out of town, a request that was firmly refused. However, he may have come to regret that decision because that evening a crowd began to form around the courthouse. In response, a call was made to a Greenwood theater that Roland's life was in danger, leading to an organized group of African-American community members joining the mob at the courthouse to defend the 19-year-old boy. Although tense, things did not truly get out of hand until a member of the white crowd tried to take out a black man's gun, setting it off in the process. Following the shot, armed men seemingly came out of nowhere. Those not armed already went wherever they could to obtain firearms, even going to the National Guard Armory demanding weapons until they were confronted by Major Bell to leave or get shot. Civilians were not the only ones desperately searching for available weaponry. African Americans attempted to retreat through downtown shortly, taking a stand at 2nd Street before escaping into Greenwood, and the overnight standoff only made the white mob more angry. At this at this point, the town was firing at each other from their respective sections of town. There were even reports of six planes circling the area to aid in the destruction, but nothing was ever confirmed. So what finally caused this uh, to end? By the morning, um, backup had come to the aid of local enforcements and um, most uh, people in the African American, uh, I'm so sorry. So black Tolsons were forced to surrender to the National Guard in the morning, and the guards advanced into Greenwood under the instructions to take any African-Americans into custody, subduing those who resisted. Yeah, so. Um, so was there a, a state government response to the incident? Um, yes. So state and um, federal police and guards worked together. So as mentioned earlier, I, civilians weren't the only ones searching for weaponry because the police themselves did not have enough guns to effectively keep the town in line, leading them to be amongst the looters breaking into local businesses and requesting aid from the National Guard. And they were finally able to get them from local security guards at a refinery. So what was the short-term result of the massacre. So there is no clear record of how many lives were lost during this brutal display of racism and white supremacy. Some records say it was close to 39. Others say the death toll could have been up to 300. This lack of consistent and comprehensive records are in part due to the bodies of the dead being uh, not being systemically handled. Though whatever the count, the amount of black community members exceeded that of white when totaling up the count of dead. The count actually was not closed until August 20th with the dex, uh, death of Commodore Knox. The search for unmarked graves and uh, burial sites remains ongoing. 
Um, once the violence subdued, many of the thousands of black Tulsans were released from protective custody, while many others stayed at camp for days or even weeks following the event. Uh, them being there saved all their lives, but that um, left their property free game for the white supremacists to destroy as they wished. This night of fighting drastically changed Tulsa's African-American community forever. In effect, an entire neighborhood was burned to the ground, is that right? How many houses were destroyed? I did not add that to oh, my notes. Do you have anything to say about the, the long-term impact? Yes. Okay. So, although Weekend Tulsa is black, residents continued to come together and establish their presence in the town, even after losing who knows how many to either violence or fear, the community banded together to establish themselves as a part of Tulsa. This is shown beautifully in the case of the Mount Zion Baptist Church. After being viciously attacked, a rumor was still able to begin circulating that the previously new church had been the headquarters for a black uprising. These men and women of faith had to stand by and watch as their innocence was questioned at their place of worship and as it was searched for weapons. Once the building was cleared, the conjugates salvaged what they could and resumed their practices in the ruins of the church's basement and continued to rebuild and collect money to pay off the debt that accumulated for more than 20 years that followed. What transpired on the night of May 21st in 1921 left a definite generational impact. Race relations simply could not be restored knowing what so many of them had done and attempted to do. But once Mount Zion had been officially restored, inspiration spread across those who remained as a symbol to move forward. Um, <clears throat> one study you looked at was by an economist, uh, Lisa Cook. Cook studied trends in the filings of patents for new inventions by African Americans. According to Cook's findings, what impact did the 1896 Supreme Court decision, Plessy v. Ferguson, the one that found that segregation based on race was constitutional. What effect did that have on the number of patents filed by black inventors? Well, when looking at the stats needed to come to conclusions like that, um, she found that it actually wasn't often listed what race uh, the patent, the person who had the patent was by, but in her findings, it showed that after Plessy versus Ferguson's uh, court ruling on separate but equal, there was a significant decrease in the amount of patents uh, submitted by African Americans, mostly due to lack of resources and ability to get to resources such as libraries and education. Uh, and what impacted that, of that decision start again. Was the impact of that decision bigger or smaller than the effect of the Tulsa massacre, according to Cook? When looking at Cook, I feel that she definitely had a stronger emotional connection to the effects that um, the downfall of Black Wall Street had, because she believed that fear was one of the big separators between um, white inventors and people of color who were inventors, especially black people of color. And did that have an impact on the country at large? It did. Um, so just adding on to those last two points, uh, Cook mentioned that the peak of patents by black people in the U.S. per capita was in 1899, and that is still 
the height today. So black people may have the right to vote in full legal citizenship, but that does not stop the generational trauma and strife that has been passed down to modern day African Americans from acting as roadblocks to success and prosperity. To pretend that racism and prejudice stopped at any point between the passage of the 13th Amendment and present day is pure ignorance and ultimately beneficial to white supremacist ideologies, with multiple lynchings having taken place just last year in the midst of Black Lives Matter protests emerging across the world. So yes, I do believe these had a big impact on um, black citizenship. And no, I do not believe that black Americans have ever been fully seen as citizens in the eyes of the United States. Thank you, Kayla. Um, the last era we're going to talk about um, this way is the civil rights era that began in the 1950s. And Jeremiah Cox has been listening to speeches by prominent activists and doing some reading about this era. Jeremiah, 1963 in particular was an eventful year during the civil rights era with marches, sit-ins, and demonstrations, always driving American blacks to uh, upset the status quo and publicly protest in that year. Absolutely. There were a, a number of factors, and in King's February 1964 speech, he spent nearly 20 minutes just outlining this exact question. Um, the civil unrest you're referring to, of course, as you mentioned, was a, a series of protests and sit-ins, um, the most famous of which was probably the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. This is often truncated to just the March on Washington. Um, but this is where King gave his, his now legendary I Have a Dream speech. And the, the many factors that were contributing to the, um, the unrest in 1963 were, were multiple, there, there, were, there were numerous factors. Uh, King points out that generally black Americans were facing severe segregation and racism and a lack of opportunity just generally. And in terms of politics, there are several promises that were made to black Americans from politicians and none of which were really followed through with. In Los Angeles, for instance, Democrats had promised sweeping civil rights legislation and none of those were passed. In Chicago, Democrats made similar promises while still conducting business with segregationist Dixiecrats. On the federal level, JFK promised magnanimous social reforms in the form of a civil rights bill, which he never followed through with, and then had the audacity to claim that his administration was doing everything it could do to help. King pointed to these situations as causing a lack of trust among black Americans toward the government's power in instigating any type of social reform. And ironically, the United States was simultaneously trying to free people from tyranny in other countries, as this era coincided with the Cold War. And black Americans really had this impression that the U.S. cared more about other people and other people's suffering than liberating black Americans in the United States. Black Americans watched as people of color were liberated from oppressive regimes all across Africa and South Asia. For instance, within a three-year time period in the early 60s, more than 30 countries had risen from colonial powers in Africa. And black kings and prime ministers were making decisions and holding power in the United Nations. Meanwhile, black Americans couldn't even vote. This didn't seem right to black Americans, and they wanted to do something about it. The Emancipation Proclamation was signed in 1863. So 100 years later, in 1963, it seemed like an opportune moment to demonstrate how segregation and racism were still alive and well. If not for this centennial, it's a wonder that events such as those of 1963 hadn't occurred sooner. Um, according to uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., um, in that speech, what role did the economy uh, play in encouraging these demonstrations and this feeling of unrest? 
well, simply said, it was a very profound one because there were multiple economic barriers that prevented black Americans from accessing the same opportunities um, towards wealth and, and uh, education and, and uh, economic advancement that white Americans had at their disposal. Um, in the 1960s, black households earned half of what the average white household earned. There were two times as many unemployed black people as there were unemployed white people in 1963. And because of this, employers knew that many black people were desperate for work, so they exploited them. They cut their wages to unacceptable rates and kept black people on the menial, undesirable jobs while giving white people higher wages and more desirable jobs. This is evident also when you look at uh, geographic differences in wages. Wages where black people were more populous in the South were significantly lower than the wages were in the North. Of course, schools were ordered to integrate by the Supreme Court ruling on Brown versus Board of Education, but this integration, though it was ordered in 1954, was extremely slow to be implemented. And this meant that black people still had extremely marginal access to quality education and training as they were still largely segregated into much lower quality uh, schooling institutions. And in spite of all these barriers, white people were still arguing that black people weren't trying hard enough and explaining their lack of success with a lack of effort. They were telling black people that they had to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and they just needed to try harder. But King had a fantastic response to this in his 1964 speech. He said that black people couldn't pull themselves up by their bootstraps because they were barefoot. different approaches used by blacks to deal with inequalities since the uh, Emancipation Proclamation? Sure, well, we've talked about this a little bit, um, some of the other speakers here. Uh, like Booker T. Washington, as uh, Victoria mentioned, um, he and, and George Washington Carver believed that self-improvement was the real way to bridge the racial divide. And so they tried to become as successful as they could in their own economic uh, industry, which was agriculture. So they tried to innovate their uh, farming methods, and in their own right, they were successful. They became really successful farmers, but they really benefited the white people who they were working for instead of black communities who they were trying to benefit. So this wasn't extremely successful. Uh, in 1909, the NAACP was founded, and black Americans tried to fight in the courts for civil rights. And this did seem promising, but it was arduous and expensive. Uh, then there was the Back to Africa movement, led by the charming Jamaican Marcus Garvey, uh, who argued that blackness was strong and beautiful and that black people should abandon this white colonial country of America and go back to their home continent that they were stolen from. But this movement didn't really gain much traction because after three or more generations of black Americans living in the U.S., not everyone was very inclined to uproot their lives and relocate. Um, then, of course, there were some violent uprisings by black leaders between the Emancipation Proclamation and the Civil Rights Movement but these were again largely unsuccessful because of an enormous militant backlash by uh, dominant white forces. King believed and showed that nonviolent direct action was the most successful way to instigate change because in his words, it cuts without wounding. It's the sword that heals. Nonviolence doesn't have human casualties yet it wins wars in his words. Violent protests created casualties and weren't really sustainable as protesters themselves weren't ready for the psychological or legal implications of bloodshed. And King points out, he's very keen to point out, that nonviolent protests didn't even originate inside the United States. He, they originated in other countries, like in India, that was a model that King often used of Gandhi's protests. And uh, King used this model 
and tested it out essentially in Birmingham and um, Montgomery with the Mon Mon Montgomery bus boycotts and the Birmingham protests where he was ultimately imprisoned and wrote his famous letter from a Birmingham jail. And these were so successful that he, he believed that nonviolent direct action was the best way to approach change in the United States. What did Malcolm X mean by black nationalism? Uh, what were his problems with King's words and, uh, and his nonviolent approach? Sure, yeah. To Malcolm X, black nationalism is what he would consider in his day to be a radical belief that black communities should have full autonomy and sovereignty uh, over their own communities. In his April 1964 speech, The Ballot or the Bullet, he essentially argued that black communities should be fully served by black people. Stores in black neighborhoods should be owned and operated by black people from those neighborhoods. Black politicians should be elected to help serve those neighborhoods and black people should not be left at the mercy of white people. Malcolm X believed far less in the power of nonviolent action. He was much more of a pessimist in, uh, and disagreed with King's act, uh, assertions because he didn't really think that nonviolent direct action would be powerful enough to overturn a century of systematically racist policies, institutions, and systems. He believed that instead of taking to the streets to protest, black people should take to their communities and take over their communities, take over their stores, their banks, city halls, so that they could govern and regulate themselves. He was promoting a much more violent and forceful takeover of power, whereas King was promoting a more peaceful protest of unjust use of power. What is the role of economics in black nationalism? Is that different than King's? The, the economic factors that contributed to um, the impetus to want to change are remarkably similar because the, the oppression that black people faced around the country was rather universal. But within black nationalism, Malcolm X places a much greater emphasis on black franchise and black investments than King does. Uh, Malcolm makes his arguments really clear that he wants black people to support other black people. And if they aren't shopping in areas of town where black people are living, then they're taking money and tax revenue away from their own communities. And this will ultimately hurt their own communities. He, he talks about if you go and shop in a white man's neighborhood and then a week or, or, or several years later you wonder why your community is in shambles, he, he essentially blames the people for not supporting their own local businesses. Um, and he, he wants black people to control all the means of their own production and consumption and create their own self-sustaining communities so that white people will have no access to interfering with them and black people can finally have their own autonomy and opportunity. Malcolm X also tried to uh, explain what was happening in 1963 uh, and, and the, the uprising or the, uh, uh, all the marches. What was his explanation? What did he think was the only thing that would satisfy African Americans? Malcolm identified, similar to King, that black people are rising up and protesting because they aren't having good lives. They aren't given access to equitable opportunities. They aren't, they're treated as second-class citizens. This is something that Malcolm really stresses throughout his uh, 1964 speech. He, he likens being a second-class citizen to being a 20th century slave, and that nothing's really changed for black people. He argued that colonialism of white people is alive and well and continues to control and suppress black people's success and livelihood. And these are things that Malcolm X identifies as oppressive, unjust practices, understandably, in the U.S., and alludes that these problems largely contributed to the magnitude of protests during 1963 and 64. And to satisfy black people, Malcolm asserts that they have to unify behind the common cause of fighting for their livelihoods. 
He argues that white people have intentionally fractured black communities to weaken them. And he's trying to undo that and try and strengthen black communities by unifying them around taking back their autonomy. He ties his argument back to the 13 colonies, where a violent takeover in the form of the Revolutionary War was required to free white Americans from British colonial rule. He uses this to assert that black Americans needed to use the same tactics to free themselves from their current colonial oppressors of white people in the United States. He argues that if 13 tiny little colonies could take over the largest global superpower at, the, at that time, black people could easily take over America in 1964. Ultimately, Malcolm is suggesting an end to black oppression will satisfy the needs of black protesters, and anything short of a full takeover and redistribution of power will not be satisfying. Um, now, of course, certainly thereafter, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed under Lyndon Johnson. Um, any chance that that would have actually met Malcolm X's uh, requirement? In his opinion, absolutely not. Malcolm X despised the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, he went around on international tours just tearing it apart. Uh, he went to England. In one speech, actually, the uh, title of his speech in the UK was called Extremism in the, in the defense of justice is no vice. Moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. And he argued that, moder that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was an act of moderation towards civil rights. It, he didn't think it was committing to legitimate change and that it was just sort of a, a facade for change that would be an international di diplomatic uh, move but wouldn't actually have any um, legitimate power in the United States. Um, he thought it was exceedingly weak in its legislative power and that it would just be like a legal boilerplate to serve as a don't discriminate uh, policy that couldn't actually be enforced. And perhaps Malcolm X was right in his criticism of the Civil Rights Act. That's still up for debate today. Many people think and believe that the Civil Rights Act did nothing to actually erase discrimination. It merely gave a legal framework to define it. and. That's still something that we're debating today. So I'd like to conclude by uh, having everyone think about, you know, of course, nobody talked about what's happened since 1965, and, and a lot has happened in the last 50 years. Uh, but um, where, do where does African-American citizenship stand today? Um, who wants to start, off, start us off with that one? opinion we've came a long way um, as we see African Americans with the same rights as everyone else today as it should be but often and we see in the news that this things happen where uh, black citizens are treated unfairly and sometimes if it was a white person they would have been treated a lot better than they were so I feel like we've still got a long way to go but we've also came a long way thank you Tom I would argue, similar to Tom, um, in the eyes of the law, black Americans are equal and have equal access to opportunity. But in reality, and in the eyes of society, the mass majority of society, this is not the case at all. And we are still seeing massive uh, gaps in, in wealth that follow racial lines, massive home, home ownership gaps, massive um, but a segregation still that is, uh, residual of redlining that we see impacting schools because schools are often funded by property taxes so 
It's like this, uh, the legacy of redlining continues to make schools that people of color are more populated with of lower quality because of uh, lower property taxes. And Could you uh, define redlining just a little bit more for us? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, redlining was a, a series of policies in a time period, I don't know the exact dates. Um, 30s and 40s. <laughs> yeah, there we go. That essentially enabled banks and uh, loaners to deny black people loans because of their um, because of their race, but they drew line, red lines, that's why it's called redlining, they drew red lines around communities of color on maps, and if a person who was requesting a loan lived in one of those areas within the red lines, then they would be denied a loan. And this was just a way to systematically prevent people of color from accessing loans and opportunities that were readily available to white people. And though this practice has been explicitly illegalized, it is still being uh, enacted in covert ways by, I mean, there, there are a number of ways that we don't get, have the time to get into right now that, that still enable this practice, um, whether or not it's legal or not. Um, yeah. And, uh, and I would add that it also had an impact on the, uh, the building of wealth mm -hmm. amongst uh, people of color because they couldn't buy their homes, they had to rent, whereas uh, whites were able to buy homes and then pass those along to their children, and so uh, that explains a, a large part of that wealth gap that we see today. Um, Effie, did you want to say something? Um, I would agree with what's been said so far. Definitely that in the eyes of the law, every American who is naturalized as a citizen is a citizen and should have the same rights. It's just that the enforcement of these rights is sometimes really thrown to the wayside, especially no one really needs an introduction to Black Lives Matter in the protest um, last summer, which really brings to light that there are a lot of aspects of society where we are terribly unequal and in fact actively discriminating against not only Blacks, but every American of color. And it just, goes to show that there's just a social awareness that needs to come around and sorry, um, just that people need to consider the implications of their actions and really understand what's going on. Thanks. Victoria, do you have anything to add? I disagree slightly with the opinions of fellow speakers here, I would argue that society as a whole, similar to the law, views African Americans and other minorities as being full citizens. The issue, in my opinion, is not society, but rather the fact that there are enough of a vocal minority who believe that minority groups are inferior, that are positioned in key places within business, within law enforcement, and within different areas of the economy to make a significant impact that hurts the minority community, specifically the African-American community. Not that society as a whole is compliant or believes similarly, simply that there's enough people with enough power and sway in certain areas to cause this effect. So you're saying that it's more a problem of, of racist elites rather than systemic racism? 
racist elites have allowed systematic racist opportunities to happen underneath their control, while others actively fight against it, some perpetrate it. And so then it becomes not only an elite issue, but also a white supremacist. They are not the majority, they are a minority idealistic group. So, um, so I'm curious where that leaves you on the question of when do African Americans are they full citizens now, or, or when did they become full citizens? Honestly, I don't have a very comprehensive answer to that question. I would argue that society as a whole deems them to be equal citizens at, during the current time. However, we cannot ignore the fact that there are many instances of a vocal minority who do not believe the same, who have caused a lot of damage to the African American community and continue to hurt them both financially, physically, psychologically, and socially. Thank you. Theodore, I've saved you for last. (laughs) Um, You've heard a couple of different uh, viewpoints here. I'm wondering what your thoughts are. So, uh, as I said, when I was talking about the early 20th century, I don't believe that black Americans currently have the same level of citizenship as white Americans do especially uh, citing that there were multiple lynchings taking place last year in the midst of the Black Lives Matter protests. So a couple of points that I wanted to hit for this point is that written law only holds as much weight as the way it's executed. So even if in the eyes of the law, uh, African Americans are equal to white Americans, if the people executing those laws have a bias or are trained to specifically stay in neighborhoods where it's predominantly like black that's not equal and it will never be equal if we continue that way and citizen it's the citizens along with the government that hold these like these ideas in place because yes the government is the one who passes laws and decides what's just in the grand scheme of things. Citizens can be very vocal and take the law into their own hands, seen in both the lynchings and the insurrection that recently took place on January 8th, which is another point with the difference in how white protesters and domestic terrorists were treated and how the Black Lives Matter protesters who didn't even get near the actual building were treated last year. There are many reasons why I believe it's extremely unbalanced, mostly modern day slavery within the prison system. Um, But even if black Americans aren't put in jail, they have less access to important things needed to move up in the world, such as uh, medical assistance and education. And even if there aren't active laws at the moment that are meant to keep black Americans down, there were ones as soon as 50 years ago that rippled because there are people who were still alive back then and there are people whose children and grandchildren are still alive. And we can't pretend that those terrible things don't have a ripple effect into the future. Thank you, Theodore. Anybody have any concluding thoughts? 
Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, I really appreciate uh, the efforts of everyone here to put this together uh, in our uh, very first podcast.